0: So the real question is, how do we start this?
1: And that is a good question. I think, like, we could talk about just about anything. We could, I mean, we could talk about um, sports. We can talk about, we can talk about sports. I mean, did you do sports as a kid? Yeah, I did. I wish I actually did more sports. I started in uh, my freshman year of high school. I started football and, uh, once I started, I went to football camp. I I went to all the practices and then I had to move schools and I moved to a school that didn't have a football team. What What, I did,
0: what school doesn't have a football team? Uh, Valley Pathways. Okay, fair enough.
1: Oh, actually, I apologize. Mid Valley high school was first. Right. Mid Valley high school. And it was out by Houston my mom switched me because I was not doing well and she heard about these alternative schools. What I didn't know until the football season was almost over is that because mid Valley doesn't have a a football team, I could have played football for any any school that you wanted to, any school I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Nobody told me. Unfortunately, when I went to mid Valley and I started going there is when I got into drugs. So I got into drugs. My grades started slipping Real bad. And football went out the window. (laughs) What position did you play in football? I was up for two possible positions. So for defensive uh, line, I was a lineman. You know, I've I've been big since I was real young. So they they were going to have me on the offensive line as a left tackle or a left guard. And then defensive line, I was going to be a defensive tackle.
0: That's pretty standard up here, I feel like. Pretty much everyone plays offense and defense football-wise.
1: Yep, yep. It was uh, it was pretty exciting. My coach, I was going to Palmer High School at the time, and Rod Christensen was the coach. He was stoked to have me on the team. He told me that he pulled me aside and told me he really wanted to start me on varsity. I'd never played football in my life. As soon as I started playing, I just ate it up, like lived, breathed, read, watched football as soon as I started playing. And uh, I excelled at football camp. They did these things called chicken drills for the linemen where you put down these block like mats. They kind of look like a giant block. They're square. You put down a couple of them and two guys get in a four-point stance, helmet to helmet, and when the whistle blows, your goal is to either throw them to the side or push them past the end of the mat. The only other team that was there... Uh, with us was the Valdez football team, and I beat all of their linemen. There you go. <laughs> it was really fun. How many years were you playing football then? That was it. It was my
0: first year. And then you just you switched schools.
1: Yeah, I switched schools. My, my coach pulled me aside, and he's like, I really want to start you varsity really bad. However, I have some returning seniors that if I start you on varsity, they might walk off the team because they worked really hard to get there. So he told me he was going to start me junior varsity and swing varsity on occasion. And he was really excited. When I told him I was changing schools, he was so upset. <laughs> he was so mad. So how how
0: important do you think um, sports was to you staying out of drugs, staying out of that lifestyle? Do you think important at all or was it more so just the change in scenery and the other stuff going on that that led you to to start using?
1: I think for me it would have it, it would have and was at the time paramount for me to stay out of falling into that lifestyle. I know that there's different stories for different people. I truly believe that competitive sports, Give somebody a reason to not want to use drugs. Drinking, on the other hand, is a little. I mean, it's easier for somebody to drink over the weekend, come back to school, participate, do well, uh, and then go to practice. You know, maybe not drink on the day they have practice, so to speak. But uh, I think it. W- I really can't think of anybody on my football team that was smoking weed or or using any other hard drugs. They, everybody took it seriously as far as I could tell. And I think that it gave me motivation. I did I wasn't even interested in trying it when I was playing football. I was just focused on football because I excelled and I loved it. It was so fun for me. It just gave me a sense of somewhere to belong, which is really what I was looking for.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think for a lot of young people that, um, the lifestyle of using, does you are kind of part of a community so that does provide that sense of belonging yeah to an extent so so how you spent the next 3 years at what later or mid valley high
1: school is what it was so funny story i went to madinaska christian school starting my freshman year like very beginning quickly switched to palmer high school my mom didn't think it was going to be good, so I went to Mid Valley, and then I went to Valley Pathways later, which is where I graduated. So you were all over the place, I, exactly.
0: Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, moving around so much—that's, I, I mean, that's got a way on a young person as well when you don't have that sense of uh, stability, especially in the. I mean. I don't want to say workplace, but for young people, I feel like school kind of is the workplace.
1: Absolutely. It was, it was challenging when, before my family moved to Alaska, we had sort of moved around a lot in Oregon, where I was born and where I'm from. We moved here when I was nine. When I was young, moving around was, it was hellacious for me. I felt awkward every new school I was in and uncomfortable. And I kind of had this revelation by the time we came to Alaska and I got around middle school age. elementary, Finishing elementary school and middle school, I stayed at the same school. But I, I just realized that, that I kind of had a power to, to make friends and I was pretty good socially with people. So I quickly, when when I started moving from school to school, instead of being the quiet kid in the corner that was new that didn't know anybody, I was a social butterfly. I, I went the opposite direction and I started talking to people. It was unnerving and internally it was really hard to not see the friends that I built a connection with anymore on a regular basis. It actually added quite a bit of anxiety my way to cope with it at the time was to just put on this false confidence and, and to become a person that I actually wasn't, but pretend to be this person that was really, really confident. I was outgoing, but I was not confident. My self-esteem and self-worth were just bottom of the barrel at the time. Um, but yeah, I went, the cool thing is, is I ended up meeting and knowing a lot of people I almost can't go anywhere in the valley without knowing people because I started at Snowshoe Elementary. So all the people that went to Wasilla Middle and High School, I knew from Snowshoe Elementary, and then I knew people from Palmer, and I knew people from Mid Valley and Valley Pathways and the Christian School. So it's, it it, it, it was, makes things
0: easier now, I'm sure. Yeah, I and mean, it's nice to have build that you were networking before networking was a thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it came a it had a positive outcome, but it was definitely. It was tough. Be It was hard for me to really find out who I was because, like I said, I was trying to fit in somewhere. I would hang out with jocks. And when I would hang out with the jock kids, I was listening to different music with them. I was talking different, acting different. And then I would hang out when I started hanging out with the stoners. Everything changed the way I talk, my music uh, that I listened to, clothes that I wore, topics that I chose to speak on. I just sort of became like a chameleon and was just trying to find somewhere where I felt like I belonged. And it actually was kind of damaging to me later because it, it made me, whether I was before or not, it made me become like really focused on pleasing people. And so I was constantly worried about what everybody thought. And I would change things about myself if people said something that they didn't like or saw something they didn't like. It took a long time to get myself out of that. And I can confidently say I am today, but in in high school, it was uh, it was tough. So when do you think
0: obviously you you
1: don't um,
0: you don't use now and what was kind of the driving force that brought you out of that, do you think? what 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 was the catalyst for that change?
1: I know exactly what the catalyst was for that change. It was April. 19th, 2012. I went to go party with a bunch of my friends. So, quick backstory I graduated high school and kind of knew I needed to turn my life around because I was depressed. It was really going nowhere. I started going to church, got involved started serving and then this opportunity to go to hawaii for ministry school came up and i was like who's going to say no to going to hawaii no for one. anything no one's going to say no to going <laughs> to hawaii for anything <laughs> so i quickly signed up started ta- talking to everybody i could think to talk to about helping to fund my way through ministry school and and i my parents got me a ticket and i was off and i spent uh collectively Uh, I don't know how many years, but the the span of years from the time I started school to the time I moved back home was close to five, about four and a half years. And during my time there, I connected with, I mean, essentially half the island of Maui, which was incredible, some people from Lanai and Molokai and, and, and what have you. And so I came back. When I came back, I just realized I didn't really fix anything. I just threw myself into a different crowd. I didn't work on me at all. I didn't change anything about myself and the way that I thought and struggled and and the feelings that I had of anxiety and depression and loneliness. They didn't go away. I just threw myself into a different crowd of people. So when I came back home to Alaska and I was done and I was out of that culture where I was submerged in church with church people and back to my own devices and my old friends, I instantly fell right back into partying again. So I had about a four-and-a-half-year stint of sobriety And then I dove straight headlong back into addiction. Whatever the opposite of cold turkey is. Exactly. I relapsed. What's funny is I told myself I wasn't going to, and I was certain I wasn't. And the first three or four times I hung out with my buddies, they were drinking and using all around me. I didn't touch, pick up a single thing. And sure enough, fourth, fourth, fifth, or sixth time, whatever it was, I said yes, and it was like I never put it down. And then what I started to say, April 12th, or sorry, April 19th, 2012, I went over to a buddy's house, and I had this plan. I was going to get super messed up on the 19th of April and spend the entire day of April 20th inebriated. That was my plan. I was like, this is a great plan. This is going to be cool. It's going to make for a great story. Uh, But I, you know, like any good addict, I didn't know how to pace myself. So I went really hard in the paint at about 7 o'clock, By 9 o'clock, I don't remember anything after that point, until later in the night when everybody else had went to bed and I was left upstairs by myself in this hangar that was attached to somebody's house in Palmer. It's a little loft area with couch and table, and I was left there. And I remember I woke up from being incapacitated, and I was on my back, and I was between the couch and the table kind of pegged. And I was so inebriated that even to just lift my arm up to my face, I couldn't even get that all the way fully happening. And I felt myself like I was going to vomit. And I instantly got scared because I believed that if I puked on my back like I was, I was going to possibly drown or choke on it. And I remember trying to turn, and I started crying. And the only thing I could think at the time was in my brain to just say, God, please save me. And I just kept saying that in my mind. To this day, I I couldn't tell you truly who the person was. I've gone back and forth on whether I believe that it was an angel or an actual person, but it was somebody in, in to my memory, I saw them. They were wearing a jean jacket. They had long hair. They grabbed me by my shoulder and rolled me onto my side as I puked and then onto my stomach and then left. When I The next morning, I asked people about this guy who saved my life, I believe. Nobody had a clue who I was talking about. Wow, nobody. I asked every single person. I spent about an hour that morning waking people up. But it was that moment, that night, after I rolled over onto my stomach, I just kept waking up and doing the same thing. I would puke, I would pass back out. And I get emotional thinking about it because I truly, I can't explain the feeling, but I truly believed I was going to die. I did not think I was going to wake up in the morning. And I remember being so scared. And the last time I passed out, when I woke back up, I couldn't believe I was awake. I just, I, 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 it was hard to accept that I was actually awake and that it was morning and I made it through the night. I went downstairs, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, I don't, I didn't even recognize myself. I I feel like I looked like in my mind, like I looked like a dead person. And then I was freaked out. I was like, am I really dead? And this is my subconscious what's left of it. So that was the thing I did instantly woke somebody up and told them what happened. Um, And the funny side of that story, because that was a pretty heavy point. The funny side of that story was that I don't know where my clothes ended up (laughs) as far as uh, my pants my shirt was covered in my yeah. own stuff, yeah, and so were the shorts I was wearing they I mean I had I had messed myself I was a, like the things that the movies don't show you about partying like just the ugly like in your own there's mess. a lot of cleanup the next morning. Oh you, you better believe it. I mean I had I had peed my pants I or my shorts I had like it was full blown. I was a mess. There was nobody there my size. So there was a girl there that was close-ish to my side, and she had a pair of pink sweatpants that said Juicy on the butt (laughs) and (laughs) some slide-in Adidas uh, sandals, and I had my jacket. And my belly hung farther down than the jacket went. So I got my belly hanging out of my jacket. I'm wearing sweatpants that are probably a size, maybe even two sizes too small for me. We leave. With, I leave with my buddy Kyle. We go to Image Audio because we see a sign advertised, free T-shirts. So I go into Image Audio, and I said, where's your biggest size? And they pointed, and I grabbed it, and I walked out. And I was a 2XL at the time, and it was a size large. That's the biggest they had. So I put it on, and it fit me about like a sausage casing. <laughs> and it went to about the same point that my jacket did, but it was skin tight. And I didn't want to wear my jacket because it smelled like cigarettes, so I put it in the trunk, and we went to crazy moose subs, me and my buddy, Kyle to go get food. And I like, I wish, and I wish I would have thought about this sooner, but if they have security footage, I would pay an untold amount of money (laughs) to find out if they have the security footage of me sitting at a table in a size, large shirt and pink sweatpants eating. Just, I probably looked as much of a mess as I felt. But it was there at that restaurant with my buddy Kyle. He's like, dude, last night was crazy. And I said, I almost died. And he laughed, like brushed it off. And it was at that moment I was like, it's April 20th, 2012. And I was like, I have to be done or I'm going to die. Yeah, There's no other option for me. I didn't plan on using that much that night or drinking that much that night. That wasn't my goal. I don't but, think that's
0: anyone's goal.
1: Right. But I had no control over it. Truly addiction. When people struggle with addiction or they are an addict and they have that, that part of their brain or, or whatever it is, to be honest with you, I don't feel like anyone can say for a hundred percent certain, but there is no power. They're powerless. I was powerless and I was, I had to make a change. So I started the only way I knew how I threw myself back into church. I had no idea anything about the recovery community this year, April 20th. I make 10 years sober. Wow. And that moment was the catalyst that changed everything for me where I realized I didn't want to die and I needed help and I needed to change my atmosphere. I had (laughs) next to no tools. And I had a picture, this really distorted picture of AA and NA that they were just groups where really sad people went to complain and, stayed sad when they left. And then years later, I started working for a company called Fiend to Clean that is now True North. And a guy by the name of James Savage took me to my first AA meeting with a new client. And my mind was blown. It was not what I expected at all or thought it was going to be. It was a room full of people who had the same struggles that I did, who thought like me, who couldn't use substances and were mad about it and confused and looking for answers. But there was hope in that room. It wasn't despair and depression and complaining. It was, there was hope there. And it totally changed my perspective. And uh, I got really connected to the recovery community after that. Um, And, and that's, I play not as big of a part as I once did. I got a lot going on, which probably has been said by every busy person in the world, but (laughs) you make time for what you make time for. I'm not making excuses, but my recovery now today is uh, definitely strongly based in my faith and my, my support system are my closest friends and family. And I have some people that go to meetings. I haven't been to a meeting in a while personally, but um, I utilize it when I need to. So, yeah.
0: And how um, maybe what's the the difference between going to that circle of friends and family and that AA meeting? Is there is there different situations for both of them or do you uh, – is it kind of um, – is it either, or just depending on the situation, I guess, is my question. Um, cause obviously both, both are important. You need that, that circle of people that are maybe not outside your circle, but, um, but it is also important to have, um, you know, people I think that are close to you that you can go to in those, in those times.
1: Absolutely. I think that in recovery, somebody's recovery, the, the, the program, you'll hear a lot of people in the recovery community say, you know, it doesn't work unless you work it and you got to find, you got to work your program. Really what that means is, is you got to find something that works for you. I truly believe that AA and NA is a great starting point for anybody and is the way that a, a vast majority of people who struggle with addiction are successful. And I believe that because people are individuals, their recovery is tailored to them. I worked at the Ernie Turner Center for quite some time before I worked here with Cook Inlet Tribal Council. I was a case manager there, and I worked alongside with some amazing people, and one in particular who um, who taught me a lot of things. and Her name is Bex Jacobs. And she had a program that we called Adventure Therapy. And what we would do is we would go mountain biking. We would go hiking. We would go snowshoeing. We would do all of these things. And then she would have these questions and these journal moments and this deep therapy that was, that was coupled with adventure, right? That was coupled with um, being active, doing things. And and it could be anything. It could be fishing, skiing, snowboarding, and anything outdoors, single track, downhill mountain biking, like they're like it, it, whatever, whatever it may be. And she really, and alongside of the people at CITC were, they helped me realize that there are many paths to recovery. It's, it's not only AA and NA. Those are the best place for somebody to start who doesn't know where to start because they can get connected with people and find out what they need and the level of connection. And I think the reason for that is that the opposite of addiction is connection. Justin, my my coworker Justin, believes the same thing about suicide, that the opposite of that is connection with people in your community. I watched this amazing Ted talk about rat park. I don't know if you've ever heard that Ted talk or seen it or or heard that study before. Essentially what it is is they get all these rats in this like rat utopia. (laughs) What does rat utopia look like? From what I can understand, it's this giant cage that almost seems like a world to the size that rats are with toys everywhere and other rats and, and anything fun that a rat could imagine. And they put all these rats in there, and they have two water bottles, one that has some opiates with some water in it, and then one that has just water, and just to see what would happen. And sure enough, over a long enough time, some of the rats would come and try the, um, the opiate water bottle, but they would almost inevitably ignore it and go back to the regular water bottle. And then they took the same rats and they isolated them. And they put the same two water bottles, and 100% of the time, the rats would kill themselves drinking the bottle filled with opiates and water. Wow. And so, this great TED talk, I'm really shortening it, of course, for you, but he goes through the, the person goes through this long uh, conversation really, really well. And they end up saying that that's their thesis statement. They believe the opposite of th- addiction is connection. And if you look through the recovery community, whether it's AA, whether it's church, whether it's NA, you talk to any addict, I would be willing to put money on the fact that if you ask them what is the most dangerous position you can be in, they're going to tell you isolated, alone, by myself.
0: And it kind of ties back to, you know, when a lot of young people, when yourself, when you fall into that addiction, um, you're doing it oftentimes to find a sense of belonging and the best way to, to curb that habit and to stop that addiction is to find that sense of belonging in a healthy place where you're building yourself up instead of tearing yourself down. Absolutely. So maybe uh, just when, cause you still work in case management mm-hmm. and looking back on, on all of that, this is obviously just a brief glimpse at, at, you know, a lifetime of, of your story, but what, what keeps you moving forward? What keeps you coming into work? Um, And what keeps that passion alive for what you do now for work?
1: That's a great question. And I think I would simply answer that with when I see a client gain traction and start moving forward regardless of whether they're successful, when they start gaining traction and they start getting things and understanding things and building connections with people, that is what keeps me going. I know that if they inevitably, if they get that piece, if they can get put into a place with enough stability to get their feet under them, to be able to start choosing which direction they even want to take a step in. You know, if you if you think of somebody trying to walk across an icy parking lot with, you know, bald shoes, it it's almost impossible. And and it's like we as case management walk over to them and we give them a pair of ice cleats and they're finally able to stand up and decide which direction in this parking lot is best for me to go in. I got a snowbank over here. I got a wide open path this way. I got a little bit of a rougher path with some, you know, better, uh, like, grounding there, a little bit more things that I could use to hold and and bearings to, to grab a hold of. And then we empower them to make that choice. And if they decide to go the way of the snowbank, and they start climbing up and they slide back down into the parking lot and lost their ice cleats, we're right back there again with another pair. Here you go. Which way are you going to choose this time? Inevitably, I've seen with every single client that I've worked with, whether here, Ernie Turner Center, any other place that I've ever been, when you empower them to make that choice for themselves, that is the best thing that you can do for them rather than holding their hand and trying to steer them because it does two things. It makes them realize they do have the power to control their life in in some senses and to change it. And it gives them the ability to build the confidence and the, the tools that they need to make good decisions as opposed to making bad ones. A lot of times when I was younger growing up, I learned because I made a bad decision and had a bad outcome. And I was like, I don't want to repeat that. And it made me realize I need to go a different direction. So wrapping back around to my answer, it's not even really the success stories. They're great. They're incredible. They give this euphoric sense of accomplishment like somebody made it. We got another one to the finish line. But what keeps me going is when I see them put on the ice cleats that we gave to them, metaphorically speaking, when I can see that something in their brain clicked and they realize now that they can start making decisions and steps in a direction. That's what gets me up every morning and brings me back into work man. I think that was a, I think that was a good talk. I think, I think next time,
0: I'll just have you do this. Cool, man. Let's do it.